Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Anchor Church podcast. It is our desire at the Anchor to provide a place for you to know God, find freedom, discover your God-given purpose, and ultimately make a difference in the world around you. Each week, the Anchor podcast features Sunday sermon. You can follow along in this podcast episode and read the sermon notes on our website by visiting theanchor.me. Now, let's get into the Word. Amen. Y'all doing all right? Amen. Well, listen, if you are a first-time visitor with us or if this is your, I don't know, thousandth time being with us today, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. Listen, at, just kind of set up what we're about to say. Uh, what I'm about to preach, just kind of two things. Uh, I would say it's, it tends to be a little bit more uh, academic than I typically like. Uh, so if you can, just bear with me on that. And uh, secondly, you know, this is one of those messages you're like, I don't know why I'm preaching this. I don't know who it's for, uh, but it's for somebody because this is not the typical message I would like to preach. And, uh, but I do believe that God wants to say some things. And so, once again, let's just give room for him, and, uh, and I believe he'll, he'll fill in the blanks. And so if you're here and you feel like I'm talking to you, I didn't even know you were going to be here today. So uh, I'm not trying to offend you. Amen? Amen? All right. Yeah. All right. So here we go. So what I want to talk about just for the next few minutes is uh, just a couple of thoughts that are surrounding the idea of God's view uh, of the church, God's view of the church. And then I want to talk about uh, why the church should be important to us. So if you're taking notes, uh, the title of today's message is We Are the Church. So uh, let me just say this. In my experience, whether it be uh, in the south or if it be up here in the north, when most people think about the word church, they automatically think about the actual physical building where their family attends, where their family goes to church, right, on Sunday mornings. You know, it tends to be, in other words, in our head, the place where we go, where we shake a few hands, exchange some pleasantries as we, you know, communicate in a foreign language called Christianese that we don't use anywhere else, right? It's where our kids go, you know, downstairs to an undersized classroom, they hear a Bible story, eat some goldfish, and eat those, uh, you know, stale, fake uh, Oreo cookies that are just disgusting. Anyways, but while they're down there, you know, we're up here in the sanctuary with a handful of, you know, teenagers, but adults mainly, and we're singing a couple of spiritual songs, you know, we might say a prayer to hear a sermon, and then kind of when, when it's all done, when all that's kind of finished, uh, you know, we go home, we eat something out of the crock pot, you know, whatever, turn on the ball game, fall asleep before halftime, whatever, right? So Monday rolls around, we get back to our normal lives, kids go back to school, we go back to work, we just kind of get back in our groove. And, uh, you know, I think for most people, you know, depending once again on who they are, uh, they just repeat that same process week after week, or maybe they come in a couple of weeks, you know, whatever, or maybe they, you know, will revisit again at Easter. I don't know. But, but here's the point, is that that particular quote-unquote view of the church as a physical building, uh, while it may not necessarily be sinful or wrong in itself, I just want to suggest to you today that I believe that when Jesus, uh, you know, talked about the church, that he had something bigger, he had something better, and he had something more significant in mind than what a lot of us think. In fact, listen to Matthew 16, if you don't mind. He simply said this. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, or on this revelation, right, that Jesus is the Christ, he said, I will build my church. Can somebody say, my church? church. And then he said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love that last part. 
So listen, in light of those words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I I believe if we are ever going to grasp what Jesus was really saying there and what he really has in mind for his church, then there's a few essential things that you and I need to grab a hold of. And so for starters, uh, I will say this, that when the Bible uses the word church, it actually uses it in two primary ways. The first way it's used refers to what is more commonly known as the universal church, or we could say the global church or the historical church, Uh, but but it's simply this. It's, It's the church that is made up of every believer who will ever live. So, so this church, this universal or historical church, it includes those who lived in the past, like the Apostle Paul, like a John Wesley, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whoever you want to put there. It also includes uh, everyone who is currently living and serving God, like us here today. And it also includes those who will follow Jesus in future generations after you and I are long gone. So in other words, collectively, in the past, present, future, we all make up His church. If you know this truth, say, oh yeah. So, listen, in addition to that, when we talk about this universal, global, or historical church, uh, you know, that also encompasses every believer around the world. I really want us to see this today because I want us to see something bigger than us. That, that literally, that regardless of where they live, regardless of their age, their race, or denomination, it doesn't matter this morning if they're meeting in a cathedral or a high school gymnasium or a house, a hut, or outside under a tree. In short, what I'm trying to say is that literally that whoever they are, that wherever they are, and whenever they are, if they have made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their life, they are a part of His universal or global or historical church. Amen? All right, so this was not only the church that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 16, but this is also the church that the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John saw and wrote about in Revelation chapter 7. He said this, grab a hold of this vision. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Man, isn't that awesome? Like, like today, I know it's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but to understand that one day when you and I pass away and we go to heaven, we are going to be standing among that crowd, that incredible multitude, and we're going to be shouting alongside of every one of them. Amen? It's a good picture. All right, so let me just kind of admit something today. With all that kind of said, like, like I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really easy to go through life uh, without giving much thought to this universal church. Right, the one that Jesus and John spoke about. But, but I believe today that if we don't pause long enough to understand our divine connection to this universal church, we'll potentially miss out on uh, some important pieces of who we are and, and the part uh, you know, that we are called to play in God's eternal purpose for his church. And it's important that we understand that there's something, once again, bigger than us so we can be who God's called us to be. Amen? So with that in mind, let me give you three reasons of why we should value the universal or the historical church. The first reason is this, is so that we can see our connection to the believers who have run before us. Somebody say connection. See, there's something about, I think, in the heart of every believer, we need to honor those who have finished the race. Yeah, see, the Bible refers to these saints of old as the the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12. And while I believe it's true that this great cloud of witnesses is currently watching down from us from heaven, encouraging us and cheering us on, I believe that with all my heart. I also think we need to understand that they are counting on us to finish the leg of our race. 
And, and when I say finish, I don't mean like, like we're like, oh my God, like dragging, trying to get across the finish line with our tongue hanging half out of our mouth. No, no, no. I think these guys are counting us to finish the race and that we would finish well. Amen. But because here's why, that if you and I, even if we don't realize it, our destinies, our purpose is divinely and supernaturally connected to all of them. Right? Let me show you. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, after the writer uh, mentions Abraham and mentions Moses, Rahab, Daniel, goes through this list. Uh, it lands here in verse 32. It's where I want to pick it up. The writer says this, how much more do I need to say? says it would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle, put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. It says, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. It says some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world or as other translations say, the world was not worthy of them. What a, an incredible Accreditation to them. It says, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. And in verse 40 is the whole reason we're reading this. It says, for God had something better in mind for us. Watch this. So that they would not reach perfection without us. Or as another translation says it, which I think is probably clearer, it says that they would not reach completion apart from us. Once again, we are divinely connected, gang. Amen? So there's two quick things I want to just highlight here before we scoot. The first one is this, is that I hope you and I understand today that we wouldn't be where we are at without their willingness to pay the price that they've paid. Like, I could sit up here for hours and talk to you about the price that so many men and women of God have paid, you know, whatever, for us to be here. But, but I simply want to think, uh, think along these lines, that you and I, you know, we have a Bible, why? Because guys like the Apostle Paul obeyed the promptings of the Holy Spirit to write, right? In midst of loads of persecution, they still obeyed God, right? And the fact that we enjoy a Bible in, in our English language is because of guys like John Wycliffe in the, you know, whatever, in the late 1300s, because he felt compelled by God, like, to, to translate, you know, the Bible for the common person like you and me so they could just read it. So we could have this today. So it would be in some Latin language with someone speaking that we have no clue what they're saying. We have it because of guys like that were willing to pay the price. You know, even on that note, to think that we're here today enjoying the freedom of worship because there's men like Martin Luther who had the courage in the, you know, whatever, in the early 1500s to go nail the statement to the door in a church in Germany to declare that men and women are saved by faith and faith alone. Do you understand that? In other words, we're here because of somebody else. Amen? So on the other hand, here's the other thing I want to grab. In accordance to Hebrews 11 and church history, like I hope we understand that, that their sacrifice and their lives aren't complete. As great as their lives were, they're not complete without us doing our part. In other words, that it's up to you and it's up to me to prove that these men and women of God didn't run in vain. 
So this might sound super silly, but, but I think it's a, a, an analogy or an illustration that all of us can maybe understand. Uh, I'm sure at one point or another, you've turned on your TV and you've watched the Olympics and you've seen men or women run a relay race where, you know, there's four runners who run in succession and, you know, as fast as they can. And when they run their little part, they pass the baton to the next guy. It goes the second, the third, and the fourth until the fourth person runs across the finish line. But, but here's the simple point I want to make by this is how many of you guys know that the first runner and second runner can run at a, at a world record pace, but if they go handed off in the, in, the, in the handoff zone and the third runner and the second runner somehow fumbles and the third runner drops it, how many of you guys know it didn't matter how fast the first one ran, how fast the second one ran, if they dropped the baton, man, it was all for nothing. Y'all hear me? So, so what's the point I'm trying to get at? Is that this, in the same way, guess what? You and I have the responsibility to receive the baton from the former generation, and we need to run with all of our mights. But watch this. Equally, you and I have the same responsibility to give or to hand off the baton of the gospel to the next generation that's going to come after us. And so with those, those thoughts in mind, there's two questions that I just have to ask you today. The first one is this, is that when you die and you go to heaven, when I die and when I go to heaven, and we go and we see guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right, who gave his life for the gospel, right? We go see those guys that you read the Fox's Books of Martyrs. We go see the guys, whatever, that, you know, the disciples, all those guys that gave their life for this thing, right? That, that will we be able to look them in the eye, right? Man to man, woman to woman, we'll be able to look them in the eye and say, you know what, brother, I gave it my best. Can we do that? Or we say, you know, I was preoccupied, man, sorry. I was busy at work. Are y'all hearing me today? And then at the same time, the other question I want to ask, man, is like, what, what kind of, what kind of uh, you know, church, what kind of church are we going to be handing off to the next generation? Is it going to be anemic? Is it going to be divided? Is it going to be carnal? Is it going to lack holiness? Is it going to lack prayer? Is going to lack the heart of worship? Like, like, what are we handing to this next generation? Or is it going to be that, or is it going to be something great that God has intended for us to be? You see, I, I hope we understand that you and I, you know, we're not here to just go, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Woo, that's good. I hope you understand that there's a burden and a responsibility that you carry to a previous generation and the next generation. Amen? All right. So let me bring a little balance to what I just said, because what I don't want you to leave here today thinking that, okay, I got to do all this and it's performance-based. That's not what I'm saying. Because at the end of the day, God's already spoken. Like we have to understand that the Bible already said some important things. And the first thing it says, and we need to grab a hold of this, because it frustrates me with no end, to no end when people run around and say, well, church, that's just man's idea. That, that person needs to read their Bible. Okay, because the Bible is very clear that the church, it says in Ephesians chapter 3, that the church was in God's mind and in God's heart before a single person was ever created. So listen, he's the architect, he's the builder, not us, right? And, and so listen, if the church belongs to him and not us, then that means that the success of the church ultimately hinges on him and not us. Aren't you grateful for that? Yeah. Because the reality is, is we're a bunch of broken, messed up people. I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about your neighbor. Clearly, you didn't. Don't look at your wife. All right, here we go. Don't make eye contact, fellas. It's dangerous. So I just think this, like, if we can remember on that note, man, Jesus said he's going to build his church, right? And he said that he would come back for a holy, 
for a unified, for a victorious, and for a glorious church. And what I'm trying to maybe throw at you today is this, is he's coming back for that church if you're in it or not. He's going to have his church. If I'm in it or not, he's going to have a holy, unified, victorious, glorious church because he has spoken. Amen? So, but at the same time, here's the neat part, is you and I have been invited to be a part of that. So why would we throw away the invitation? Y'all know y'all have gotten invitations in the mail before. <laughs> you know you've got it, right? So, so why would we throw it away? Listen, God is inviting you and I to be an active part of the church that he loves, that he believes in, that he has a plan for, that he has ultimately commissioned and set apart, and that he has ultimately given authority to. Why? Because he has an eternal purpose that he wants to accomplish. And once again, he's inviting you and I to co-labor with him to see that come about. That's exciting. So don't disqualify yourself. Amen? Amen. The second reason we should value the universal church or historic church is because uh, so that we can see we are one with all believers around the world. This is important, okay? Once again, I'm, I'm saying this again. I think sometimes it's so easy in the church world to get caught up in us four and no more, and our, picture, or our image of the church is really small. I'm trying to magnify that today, Okay? So listen, I, I, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it's pretty easy to let my heart get divided over different methods, different preferences, different traditions, and different gray areas of theology. Like it's easy for me to roll into a room, even if I'm in a room with other pastors, it's easy for me to let, to let my heart get divided when I know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so doesn't think about this or that the way I do. I know you've never done that. Okay, so I just think this, that in spite of all of our differences, and, and you know, just in simple fact, let me just say it this way. Why do we have so many different churches in our town? Because we all believe something different. So why are they some at this first, that, some at this second, that, some at this, right? Why are we all divided today? It's simply because we have something different. But, but, I, but I think Jesus wants us to see that he still sees us as one. In his eyes, we're still one, right? So, in other words, he doesn't separate us like we tend to separate ourselves. In fact, just to give you a word picture, it's not like you and I are going to die and go to heaven one day, and Jesus is going to come walk alongside us and say, hey, I just want, to, just want to welcome you here, and I just want you to know that if you look over here to the right, that's the Baptist side of heaven. <laughs> yep, and if you look over here, yep, right over that little, the little knoll there, yep, that, that, that's the Catholic side of heaven. And, and so I just want you to know, I know you're, you're maybe picking where you're going to live, you know, for eternity. And, and so I just maybe suggest, if you're looking for something quiet, you want to kind of rest a little bit, you want to kind of enjoy the retirement life, the Presbyterian part, the Presbyterian <laughs> suburb is like right over there. But, but, you know, listen, if you're one of those like, you know, people that likes a really good block party, you know, way in the back 40 over there, yeah, that's where we put the Pentecostals. They're like on that side of the city. You know, they're always shouting. They're always hollering. They're the kind of rowdy, wild side of the family that we're kind of ashamed of. So we just, they, we just kind of put them way back there. So if you want to go join them, join them. That's where I'll be, right? He doesn't look at it like that, right? In fact, we read a while ago out of Revelation, man, some multitude of people shouting to God. So what happens is, is that, bro that brother, that sister that I've been divided and frustrated with for all these years, more than likely Jesus is going to make sure they're sitting right there. <laughs> He's like, I'll show you, right? Okay. So listen to this verse that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. He said in Ephesians 4, he said, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. 
Can I expand that really quick? Does the Bible not also say that the church is one body with many members? Does not say the church is one temple with many stones, one church with, right? That is, uh, the church is one flock with many uh, sheep. Hopefully I said it right. The church is one nation with many citizens. The church is one vine with many branches. The church is one family with many brothers and sisters. The church is one army with many soldiers. Listen, I think if we can get a hold of, of how God views us, then maybe we can honor one another better than what we do. Can I hear a good amen? Amen. Amen. That's how we walk in the spirit of unity. So let me say this before we move to the next point, just an extra thought. Um, You know, I would say more than likely, if you're in this room, you've been walking with Jesus, you know, for a number of years, you probably have one, two, three, four, five, or six preferences of how you like to do church. All right? Like you probably got it, okay? And and that's okay. But, But there's a verse that I want to consider here. Jesus said this in Mark 7. He simply said this. He said that you and I can actually cancel, cancel the power of God's word in our lives when we choose to prefer our traditions over other people. Get that. That I can get so hellbent. Hellbent's probably not the right word there. I can get so I can get super dogmatic with what I believe in my traditions. I can get so hung up on that that actually the word of God goes null in my life, in that brother's life, that, that, that we're, we typically have the power to create the spirit of unity, the power of the unity of the faith, it cancels that out. That's pretty sobering. Third reason we should value the global historical universal church is so that we can see God is doing something bigger than one person, one local church, or one denomination Listen, as much as I love what we do here, as much as I believe in what we do here, um, you know, I recognize that, that there's other churches in this town that are equally doing things for the gospel, and we need to celebrate that, okay? So, so let, let me even say this. I know there's people, because I've been doing this a while, that, that they want to act like that God will literally, like, marry or commit himself simply to one expression of the faith, like, oh, it's like, once again, we'll go through the Baptist side, the Presbyterian side. There's the, the Pentecostal side, or, you know, there's the Bethel side, the Elevation side. There's the North Point side. There's the, right, like all the people, oh, that's Craig Rochelle's side, right? So all, all these things, and we try to somehow segregate ourselves. Man, that's so unbiblical, yeah. right? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that God's never going to make a, a full-on commitment to a single expression or a single style or a single method of doing church. Rather, he is, he is fully and equally committed to all of his children and every generation. So even if I can put it to you this way, uh, there's, us, there's some of us in this room that we know what it's like to go to a foreign country and to actually participate in a church service that's basically a hut, and there's about four or five or six people there. And I want you to know that in my experience, Jesus shows up there too. Right? So in other words, once again, it's not about, oh, when you reach this number, oh, you're more special and I'll come. Right? Like, like that line, I'm one of God's favorites. I hate that line. We're all God's favorites because we're all God's kids. Right? So anyways, so with that in mind, I just think, man, God, please give us your perspective of other believers. Give us your perspective of the church because it will help us. Amen? Let me give you one last verse, and, and we're going to transition. Ephesians 3 says this. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven, the whole fa- we're all family, 
Yeah, we got some crazy uncles and some crazy cousins. But, man, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So, God, give us a vision of that. Amen? Amen. All right. So, let's transition. Uh, as important as it is for I, as it is for you and I to understand our place in universal church, I think it's equally important that we understand the second way that the Bible uses the word church because it really affects us more than what we just talked about. In other words, it affects us in a deeper way. And it's this. If you, if you actually read from the book of Matthew all the way to Revelation, you'll find that the, the word church is mentioned 114 times. Okay, now out of those 114 times, 96 of those speak directly to this thing that we know as the local church. 96 out of 114, that's a pretty high percentage, right? In other words, it's talking about those who gather in a specific location, meaning that in, in some particular community, some town, some city, some region, that, you know, that these people somehow have been marked by their decision to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. And because of that decision, they choose to consistently gather to worship, to fellowship, and to grow together like we're doing here today. So, so in fact, if I could just say this, if you, read, if you read once again pretty much from the book of Acts on, you'll find out that there's 34 local churches mentioned and six regional churches that are mentioned. So you'll see like the church that met in Priscilla and Aquila's house. You'll see the church of Ephesus where Timothy pastored. You'll see the church of uh, Jerusalem where James pastored. You'll see the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas kind of uses their home base to, you know, to launch out and do ministry from. So, so this is an active thing that's all throughout the Bible. Once again, it's God's mind. It's God's idea. It's not somebody woke up one more and said, hey, let's do this. And a bunch of people got deceived and we all started going to church. Okay, so, so I just think this, it's important for us to understand that unlike the universal church that, that covers this incredible uh, span of time, right? Like it's, we're talking history here, right? History, the, basically the known creation of the earth, right? That, that, that when we talk about the local church, it, what it's supposed to be is this, is a very present, a very active, a very close-knit, personal, life-on-life approach to walking with Jesus, so in other words, I've never met Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I got some of his books. He impresses me, okay? I've never met Smith Wigglesworth. I would love to. I will one day. But guess what? I, God didn't call me to do life with him. He called me to do life with you, yeah. right? And so we need to see that, that it's not supposed to be this distant thing like the universal church. Once again, it's this close thing like what we see in the Bible here as far as what the local church is supposed to look like. In fact, let me just say it to you this way and we'll move. Jesus mentioned the word church Two, uh, the word church two times. The first one we read a while ago in Matthew 16 where he says, I will build my church. That was the universal or global church. The second place he mentioned it was in Matthew chapter 18, and this is where he's talking about the local church. Now, uh, what's so funny is I'm going to read this, and you're going to see that there's a portion of Scripture that I think most of us in this room are very uncomfortable with. I'm not super comfortable with it uh, because, because uh, it gets messy, all right, and so what we do is we, we just kind of like read, and we go, ah, no thanks about that part, and then we declare the promises that are on the end. And I want us to understand that you can't declare the promises on the end if you're not living the first part in context that Jesus gave it. Okay, so let's read this together, and we'll all get uncomfortable. Here we go. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus talking. He said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Told you it was uncomfortable. Here we go. 
just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the local church. That's the Greek word there. And if they refuse to listen even to the local church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let me pause right there and give you a moment. If you read in 1 Corinthians, I want to say it's chapter 7. I may be wrong with the address. But when, when Paul actually confronted, said, told the church, basically, you got to confront this guy. He's rolling around bragging that he's having sex with his stepmother, and he's making a big deal out of it. He said, that's to your shame. You need to confront the dude's sin. You need to throw his butt out of the church. And you, because why? Because it said this, for the destruction of his flesh, for the saving of his soul. They were practicing this scripture that Jesus said. Do y'all see that? How many of y'all know? Wave your hand at me if that's uncomfortable. Amen. Some of y'all are comfortable. That's good. I know who to come to when we do church discipline. I'll be like, you handle it. <laughs> All right. Watch this. So let's pick up where we like to declare. Here we go. It says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Hey, hey. 19. It says, <laughs> it says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I told y'all we liked that last part. <laughs> All right, so in full context, let's be honest. How many of you know that that's going way beyond the surface-level Christianity that so many of us practice today. Like, way beyond. We live in a culture that, that is offended over everything, including in the church. Okay? So, so, let me just point out once again, notice the benefits when we actually do life on life. Okay? The first one, what did he say? That there's an incredible uh, amount of power when we pray. Bind and loose. Like, we love that. Hey, yeah, right, we like it, especially if you're on the backside, right? You're in that Pentecostal circle. You like that piece, right? And the reason that there's power there is because why? Because in that church, sin is being confronted and dealt with. Because when purity and holiness comes, power comes. Amen? So that's why it's there. Now, understand the second promise. He said, guess what? When you gather in my name, when you worship me from that pure heart, right, after sin is dealt with, guess what? I'll come. So listen, we wonder a lot of times why the power of God's not showing up in the modern-day church. I think it's probably because we're not exercising the first part of how Jesus said we should do church. Life on life. In other words, in today's church, it's so easy to walk in the room. I'm going to find me a seat, sit down. I'm going to look forward because if I look to the left or the right, I'll have to engage. As soon as he says, amen, I'm scooting to the car. Right? In other words, there's none of this. That I want somebody to get in my life and really know me. What if they reject me? What if they know my story? What We all got stories, guys. Yeah? We're all a mess without Jesus. And so I'm trying to tell you all, I guess in essence, man, this is a really safe place where we get the opportunity to do life with one another. Nobody's going to reject anybody. We're just going to love Jesus and move forward together. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me maybe say this. Throw it out there for you. I think God gives us permission to be messy. He doesn't give us permission to be sinful. In other words, it's this. Like, if I understand that, that I'm a mess... That's okay, because I can lean into his order. 
Like if I understand I'm unrighteous, I lean into his righteousness. If, I'm, if I lack holiness, I lean into his holiness. If I lack purity, I lean in, right? If I'm insecure, I lean into his security. If I, you know, whatever, you name it, I get to lean in. That's messy. That we're leaning in together into Jesus, like that's why we're here. But, but to say, well, you know, God winks the eye and says, okay, you can be sinful and do whatever you want. No, 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 you're reading the wrong Bible. Am I making sense? All right, so let me say this. When it comes to those two promises, binding and loosing, and he said that if we're two or three, you gathered, he'll show up. Notice he never said that to the universal church. He only said that to the local church. So if we want to reap those promises, we got to dive into the local church. Amen? Amen. All right, so um, yeah, so let me even just to kind of put a stamp on that, we'll move. 114 times. Church is mentioned. 96 times talking about the local church. So where do you think God wants us to put our, or put more, let me say it that way, more of our attention? But how many Christians do we meet that are running around and they're championing this universal church, but they refuse to get a part of a local church? It's off. It's not right. It's not biblical, right? Amen. All right. So, so let me say this. When it comes to this universal church, I think, I think we need to see that we, that we automatically become, for lack of better words, a member, right, of the universal church the moment we get saved. Okay, the Bible says that. It's really clear. In other words, we didn't have to think about it. We didn't have to pray about it. We didn't have to seek wise counsel about it. The Bible simply says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the moment you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptized you in the body of Christ, which is the church. Okay? But watch this. On the other hand... When it comes to the local church, we don't become a part of one until we actually make a personal, deliberate decision or deliberate commitment to do so. Like, we need to understand that. Just because we go, well, I'm saved, doesn't mean you're in. You're only in when your heart's in. It's like this. It's like, you know, if you're single in here, you, you can go home and you can think all day that you're married. Think until your heart's content, but you're not really going to be married until you stand at an altar and you go all in with somebody. Maybe, for example, shooting from the hip. All right, here we go. All right, so, so let's, let's get honest really quick. Here's why I feel like uh, a compelling to say this. I'm going to be really candid and I'm going to be really open. Once again, my, I don't know who's showing up today, so I'm not trying to offend anybody, okay? But, but I'll say this. In the last seven years... Um, Man, I've met more people than I've probably met my entire life that say they love Jesus, that say they're a Christian, but, but, but when you begin to ask them what church to go to, there's not a church, right? In, in other words, it's this, like they, they feel like um, church is optional, like it's optional. And I want you to know today, hopefully you'll see this, that that's unbiblical, that this isn't an option, Right? And so, you know, when I've, when I've asked people over the years, like, hey, like, okay, can you tell me why? Most of the time, they'll begin telling you their story, and it boils down to two main things. There's some other things that on our side we'll get to in a second. But the two main things is this. is church hurt. Somebody hurt me in that church. And secondly, it's this. It's because, well, there's hypocrites in that church. So let me say this. At face value, I can, I can honestly relate to the way they feel. Listen, you, you don't... You don't serve as a pastor for, you know, a few decades without getting hurt by somebody in the church. 
The only difference is, and I'm not saying this lightly, is this, is, is other people, they, they, they just leave and go to another church or they drop out altogether. When you feel like you're called to church, you can't run. You have to get in with Jesus and you got you to gotta help him heal you. Right? And so, so I understand that church hurt is real. I get that. Sign me up. I got it. Right? I got the t-shirt. Okay? But, but I want to say this. I also understand the hypocrisy in, in many ways is the black eye of the church. Like, I get it, man. It's there. I've seen probably more than most in that. Okay? Because why? Because I've seen people in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. Right? I've seen it behind closed doors. And I'm like, what did you just say? Right? So, I, so, yeah, I get it. That's all I'm saying, okay? But, but if we can understand this room today that, man, like, like this isn't anything new. Like, let's not act like, our, like church hurts a new thing. Let's not act like hypocrisy is a new thing. All these things have been going for a while. Like, if you think about it, man, like in the Bible, it talks about Eli's sons who were priests, right? That they were literally sleeping with women on the altar. That might be hypocrisy. <laughs> okay? So, so to understand that, that Eli himself accused Hannah of being drunk while she was praying. How many of you guys know that that was an opportunity for church hurt? Right? Accused, the woman's pouring her heart out, believing God for a miracle, and the priest comes, trashes her, and says, you're drunk, get out of here. Talk about being misunderstood. Right? Think about this. Jesus in the New Testament, he said that the Pharisees turned the, you know, the temple, the church, if you will, right, into a den of thieves. That's hypocrisy. And if you, if you really want to go down to it, the church is really who killed Jesus. You and I are still breathing. They killed him, right? And so here's the main point I want to get at, and, and we'll get in the weeds a little more. It's this, but if you notice, Jesus never turned his back on the church. So these people that say they're following him and following example, and they're turning their back on Jesus, they don't know what Jesus did. Jesus didn't turn his back on the church. He purified the church. That's why he flipped the tables, right? Why, why did Jesus, they say, you know, they go, well, I'm not committed to that. Jesus stayed committed to the church. He stayed so committed, the church killed him. He died for them on the cross. Like, we need to get a biblical perspective where we just repeat what somebody else says. The church is so guilty of regurgitating somebody else's thoughts other than going and saying, what does the Bible say? Preach, Right? So, so listen, I'm just going to ask you this. How could Jesus do that? I, I think there's something that we need to learn from him today. How could Jesus do what he did in the face of all of that, knowing more than what you and I will ever know about what happens in the dark? Okay, I think it's because he chose to focus on what was right about his church rather than what was wrong with it. And so imagine if we actually came to church and we said, okay, I understand that we're not nailing it in these areas, but, man, here's where, man, that's where the good things are happening. And if I can have the maturity to focus on that, because I'm going to shoot straight with you. Uh, it, it takes a whole lot mature, more maturity to focus on the positive than the negative. That's with a person or with a church, with an organization, with your job, wherever it is. Maturity says, what's the positive? Where's God's moving? Where's the hand of God at? Anytime man's going to be involved, there's going to be inadequacies. It just comes with it. Amen. All right, so let me say this, because I don't want to be... I don't want to lack sensitivity. I, I believe that if, if someone's here and, you're, and you've been hurt by the church, uh, you know, Tommy and I have talked about this many times. If you've been hurt by the church, at the end of the day, please understand that Jesus didn't do it. Okay? He wasn't the one that hurt you. So you can go to him and, and receive healing from him. Okay? Man is man. God's God. Go to God. 
Okay? So, but let me say this. As far as when it comes to that side that says, um, you, you know, I'm not going to church because there are hypocrites there. i got to be honest with you. That's a tough pill for me to swallow. And, and here's why. It's because, it's because there's hypocrites everywhere. Like, <laughs> it's going to sound so silly. But I've, I've met doctors who smoke, who are overweight, got high blood pressure, and got loads of medical issues, but yet people keep scheduling appointments with them. Like, I've been to gyms before, not that I clearly go to a gym a lot, okay? Um, I prefer the chair, okay? But um, listen, there's people in gyms, and there's people running around giving all kinds of workout advice, and they're not some cut-up monster machine. Rah! Some are, are fluffy, right? And, and so, but yet, guess what? You, you walk in, and just because they have that shirt on, they work there. Guess what? It, you know, you, you keep going, Am I making sense? Let me even say this. I've met dentists before that I didn't think had the best teeth on the planet. But yet people go, keep sitting in their chair. I, I, once again, I know that's silly, but, but it's so funny that we apply these rules to the church, but we don't live them anywhere else. Right? And so, so my point is this, is just because you come into church, it doesn't mean that every person's going to be a super saint. Like we've already established this. We're imperfect, broken, sinful people who kind of need God, and that's kind of why we're here, yeah. right? So we're all a work in progress, right? Once again, we have permission to be messy. It's okay. All right, so watch this. It, so if I could add on to those, those things about hypocrisy and about church hurt, you know, once again, I've met people who are just indifferent about the church. I've met people who kind of pop in and out. I've met people who, uh, you know, go to this church one week, two weeks later, they go to this church, and they go to this church. You, you know, what, whatever. I've met all those people, okay? And um, I, I just think at the end of the day, when you talk about these people, ultimately, if you get down to it, they don't see their value or the value, and they don't see their need for being committed to a local church. And it's unfortunate. And I'm going to say something I'm sure some of y'all are going to disagree with, and it's okay. If you got a problem with what I say, you can talk to Chris, okay? <laughs> so he'd love to talk to you. But, but I just think this. The people who have, who have bought into this, man, that, that thinks that it's okay to do all that stuff, to hop around, right, to show up whenever you want to show up and, and, and whatever, to be really indifferent or just not go and say you're a Christian, I, I think those people have believed a lie from the devil, Okay? And I think the lie that they have believed is that they have told themselves that they can thrive in their faith apart from other Christians. I need to say that again. They think that they can thrive, flourish in the faith apart from other Christians. And, and I just want to say this, man. I, I've read this book for 26 years. I haven't found that in there. I've never found it in there that, that we can live isolated and we can still flourish in God. Am I making sense? So, so I just think this. It's like, man, the Bible's really clear. Yes, we come in a relationship with Jesus, but we're, all called, we're also called to do relationship with other people. And, and so think about this. Does the Bible not also refer to us, or does God not refer to us as being a body, being a household, being a family, being children, being living stones, being an army, being branches, being a flock? Does he not say all those things? Yes, he does, okay? So, so listen, if we could just kind of take note of one thing, notice that 
every one of those visual pictures that he's given us, uh, they have all have this one thing in common. They all speak directly to us being together. They speak to a closeness. They speak to a connection or codependency upon one another. Once again, there's this idea there that you can't become all that you've been destined to be without everybody else in this room. And I can't be who I've been called to be without everybody in this room. That's what it's saying. Unless we have this, uh, you know, this uh, relationship or this deep connection to other believers, then we're going to flounder. Amen? So, so let's get practical for a moment, okay? Let me just ask you a series of questions along with what we just said right there. So listen, can, can a sheep survive separate from the flock? Like I got one word, okay? You can, you can go turn on the Nature Channel. It's called a wolf. They're going to die, right? Can a branch live separate from the rest of the tree? Like, I would challenge anybody to go home and pick your favorite tree in your yard, cut a branch off, throw it on the ground, revisit it in two weeks, and you tell me how well it's flourishing. Right? So, listen, can a, can a soldier win a war by himself? Can it? No. Can a single stone hold its place without the support of the other stones around it supporting it? Can a child survive without a family? Can an individual be considered an entire family unit without a family? No, can a hand, can a foot, can a, can a whatever, an ear, can a liver, right, uh, be, be what it was meant to be without being connected to the rest of the body? Obviously, we all know the answers. All those are no. But, but the question I want to give to you is this, is then why do so many of us try to convince ourselves that we're exception to the rule? Amen. Right? Like, like why, do we, why do we lie to ourselves? And we tell ourselves, well, I don't really, I don't really need that. I'm okay without them. It's not biblical, okay? So, uh, yeah. So here's the single point. Hopefully, I'm not boring you here. The, the, no matter how you want to dress it up, guys, and we'll throw the next slide up, is that simple Christianity was never meant to be walked out in isolation. Listen, there's these things when we come together that it's here that we get to enjoy covenant. We get to enjoy generosity. We get to understand sacrificial service. It's here where we find fellowship and accountability. It's here where we actually can cultivate authentic relationships around the cross, right? It's where we find spiritual fathers and mothers, sons and daughters. It's where we receive discipline. It's where we receive training. It's where we receive correction. It's where we, uh, you know, receive protection. It's where we break bread and communion like we did this morning. It's where we we pray and where we worship together is where we disciple one another with the word of God. Are you seeing this? It's where we practice unity. It's where we receive comfort and encouragement. It's where our gifts are discovered. It's where they're developed. It's where they're flourished. It's where we experience his presence together. Like, are you seeing all this? Like, I'm not making any of that up. That's all from this. Right? In fact, I'll say it this way. This morning I woke up at Odart 30. I walked into my living room and I began to pray, Jesus Lord, I love you. You know what I felt for the hour, an hour and a half I prayed? Nothing. Where are you, Lord? <laughs> right? Hello! Watch this. But I walked in this morning, and I stood right there. Tommy started the first song. In 30 seconds, boom, there he is. Why? Because there's a promise where two or three are gathered. Am I making sense? Man, I don't know about you, but I need those moments. Amen? Amen. All right, so, so let me just say this. 
kind of put a stamp on this point, and we're almost done. But, but it's like this. To understand that all those things we just talked about that are the benefits of, of doing life together, those things don't happen, uh, happen automatically just because we walk in the building and grab a seat and ignore everybody. They only happen because we engage. Right? Listen, and none of that happens because we, you know, go over to YouTube and type in our favorite preacher. Our favorite preacher don't even know us. He's not going to come to your house. Right? He'll pray for you if you send him an offering. <laughs> so true. Listen, the only way that that stuff happens, once again, is authentic relationship within the local church. It's Bible. The Bible says this, Psalms 92, 13. Y'all can quote it. He who is planted in the house of the Lord will do what? Flourish. Somebody say flourish. You learned a verse today. That was good. All right, here we go. So um, how do we want to finish this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm about done. Here we go. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me just say this. You can throw up the next slide, please. Yeah, listen, God's plan is for every believer who has become part of the universal church, the global church, by faith in Jesus Christ to be physically added to the local church and become a functioning, healthy part of it. Okay, kind of wordy, but very accurate. Okay, so I want, I want you to do a favor real quick. Just, just turn to your neighbor. If you got two, it's okay, we'll give you time. But I want you to ask him one question. Say, are you... Oh, that was so weak. Say, are you... Planted. Y'all watch this. All right. Watch this real quick, please. Acts 2, I believe, testifies to what we're talking about today. It's the last verse, and we'll be done. We'll pray. But, but I want us to notice something, that after this portion of Scripture was written... From this point on in the book of Acts, every time you see a person come to the faith, they were connected to a local church. Every time, okay? So, so once again, that's not Quentin, that's the Bible, okay? So, and I also want to point this, that if you're here today and you want to do great things for God, please understand from this point on, there was never a lone ranger who did anything great for God. That, that even the great Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, that everything that you read about him, there was always somebody with him. And that guy was going around planting churches. He was a pioneer missionary. He was going around planting churches, and he always had a posse with him. Okay? He didn't do life alone. Okay? So, so you can't, I can't. Even the Son of God came, and he chose not to do life alone. Like, understand that, please, okay? So let's read what happened at the conception of the church. It says, And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. It says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Those, they got saved. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued, what? Steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. In other words, the teaching of the word and in hanging out together. Then the breaking of bread, in other words, had meals together and in prayers. It says, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Let me pause here. How many of you guys want to see miracles? Amen. Amen. I wasn't all of us, but that was a good portion. What's the first, what's the first word of verse 43? 43. Then. 
Notice it happened after, after they committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In other words, after they committed themselves to the church, then signs and wonders came. It says in verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They enjoyed life together. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And guess what happened? It says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They just locked in together, did life together, served God together, and God began to multiply the church. Pretty cool. Amen? Amen. You can stand to your feet. So I simply just want to pray this, okay? That God would give us a bigger picture than what we have currently of his, of his church. And secondly, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt where we're supposed to be planted and rooted and producing fruit. Can we do that? Jesus, I thank you for every person that's in this room today. And Lord, I'm, I'm asking God for every one of us, Lord, that you would give us a worldwide, universal, historical view of the church. God, and I pray today that upon every person in this room that they begin to feel uh, the burden and the weight that they carry for being a part of that church. Lord, I pray that they would see that their lives aren't meant to be lived in vain. They're not meant to be lived aimlessly. But God, I'm asking God that every one of us in this room would begin to see, God, that there's a purpose from you, God, that compels us to move forward in life. God, that there's a race that's being run and there's a, there's a race that we need to run with effort and we need to run with might and we need to run with passion and we need to run with desire because, Lord, you have somewhere for us to go. Father, I'm asking today, God, in the name of Jesus, that you begin to open up our eyes in ways that we've never seen, that we would begin to uh, see the people around us with value, that we would see our need for those around us. Father, that we would begin to understand that there's things that you have put in our hearts and there are things that you have put in their hearts that fit together like puzzle pieces that create a picture of what you desire to reveal to a lost and dying world. And so, Lord, today, God, whatever you got to do in us to help us to be firmly planted and firmly committed to wherever you have us to be, God, if it's in this church or another church, God, that you would just simply show us, God, so we can begin to flourish. God, there's no doubt that you have a great plan and a great purpose for our lives. And, Lord, I'm just asking, God, that you would you'd help us not to be alone. In fact, Lord, I just ask for those people that are in the room at this moment, God, that feel really alone in this. God, more than likely, there's somebody in this room today that their family doesn't really serve you, their family doesn't really understand you, but God, they've been faithful to come even when people don't really understand. Lord, I'm asking, God, that you would connect because I've been there, God, and you connected me to a spiritual family that, that understood me, 
a family that understood what we were living for. And so, Lord, would you begin to connect us to those around us, God? And you would, and we just ask, Lord, that every person in this room would just feel the permission from heaven, God, to just be, to be messy, to be vulnerable, to be real, to be honest. Lord, that you would help us to remove the facade, remove the mask, remove the religious jargon that, that produces nothing. Lord, we ask, God, that you would help us be heart-to-heart, face-to-face, life-on-life, and live with one another. God, I'm asking that you would help us to do that. God, I'm asking, God, that there would be a freedom to break away from performance, that there would be a freedom to break away from false, fake identities. And, Lord, that you would just help us to be the real deal, to be authentic. Just, man, we're trying to love Jesus. So, Lord, I bless your people today, God, to be all that you've called them to be. God, remove every hindrance out of their life. Remove every lie of the devil, any lie that they believed. Lord, we ask that you would remove it today so they could be free in who you've called them to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for encouragement in your walk with God and to receive updates on events happening at The Anchor. Have a great week and God bless.